The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. Space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity. Powerful yet untold examples of Native peoples resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about indigenous people's food traditions, and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems. We have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. In today's episode, we're taking a closer look at the era of Indian reorganization, which took place in the late 1920s through the 1930s. This was a pivotal time as the U.S. government began winding down its assimilation policies and made moves to strengthen tribal self-governance. To start us off, I'm going to go back a little earlier to discuss how the previous eras influenced the events in this era. If you need a bit more context of what was happening just prior to this era, check out episodes 5 and 6, a two-part segment on the allotment and assimilation era. In 1926, the Institute for Government Research appointed Lewis Merriman to conduct an in-depth survey to report on the conditions of American Indians. Lewis Merriman had advanced degrees in both government and law and had vast experience working for several government bureaus. Merriman was chosen to head this investigation of Indian affairs because of his experience studying government operations. After his appointment, Lewis Merriman formed a small team of content experts and they set out, often traveling solo, to visit schools, hospitals, and reservations across the country. The survey team was provided only a year to complete a complete survey of all American Indians so that the changes could begin before a new administration took office after the 1928 election. Within that short time, the survey team managed to visit close to 100 reservations in 23 states and produced an 847-page report. The official report was published in 1928 under the title, The Problem of the Indian Administration. But since then, it has been commonly referred to as the Merriam Report. The Merriam Report included eight sections that examined the general policies at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, health, education, economic conditions, family and community life, and other aspects of Native communities. In terms of health, 
the report stated that the health care provided by Indian services was below reasonable standard and that this could largely be attributed to the lack of funds allocated to provide care. Lack of funding resulted in personnel shortages and high turnover of medical staff, which often led to lowering of personnel requirements so that people who were unqualified for positions would secure permanent appointments. Many Indian service staff lacked any understanding or training of native languages. Inadequate funding also meant a lack of adequate medical facilities and equipment. This chapter of the Merriman Report also pointed out that the absence of quality care was most apparent when looking at the Indian boarding schools maintained by the government, which the survey team described as grossly inadequate. Native children were malnourished from the meager rations and poor diet, were living in overcrowded conditions where contagious disease was not contained, suffered through insufficient medical care, and were subject to heavy labor. In its conclusion, the health chapter stated that the single item most affecting Indians' overall health is the food supply. Whatever the situation may have been in the past, the Indian is now given, whether as a rationer or pupil, a very poorly balanced ration. The Merriam Report concludes that on the whole, the American Indian has been starved or fed inferior food. In the chapter on general economic conditions, the Merriam Report described the extreme poverty in which the majority of American Indians lived. In 1920, the average national per capita income was $1,350, but the average Native American made $100 a year. A major contributing factor was the loss of land. When Native Americans did have access to land, the land was generally unsuitable for meeting their own needs or making a living from farming. The survey team points out that their former sources for food, clothing, and shelter have been largely destroyed by the encroachment of white civilization. More specifically, the team discussed how the land allotment process had created these dire economic conditions. The report observes that allotment of land to Indians were generally made more or less mechanically. Little consideration was given to whether the parcel of land would be productive or provide a livelihood. The survey team concludes that the apparent objective of allotment was to complete the task of allotting land so that it could be bought and sold, rather than providing Native people with lands that could sustain a livelihood. Furthermore, this chapter regarding economic conditions stated that little effort had been made to create broad and long-lasting programs to offer appropriate education, training, and resources to aid in the economic transition that was forced through the land allotment process. There had been no education about how to make a livelihood from the land allotments. Native peoples were being forced into an economic system, which primarily valued labor and goods, in which they were unprepared to participate even if they wanted to. Too often they faced the difficult decision of selling parts of what little land they had in order to survive. As a whole, the Merriam Report detailed the abysmal conditions on reservations and found the federal government's allotment and assimilation policies had failed Native Americans. While the goal of these policies may have been to integrate Native peoples into mainstream society, in reality, it segregated them and created a separate set of laws, conditions, and burdens that their lives were subject to. 
Immediately following the report, the newly elected Hoover administration swiftly allocated emergency funds to supply food and clothing to the boarding schools. President Hoover appointed staff to work on a reform package to improve medical facilities at these schools. But no action was taken to address the underlying inequalities caused by allotment. And the Merriam Report drew sharp criticism of the federal government's handling of Indian affairs. However, indifferent policymakers, along with the impacts of the Great Depression nationwide, meant little was accomplished during the Hoover administration. After the 1932 election, the incoming Roosevelt administration was under great pressure to pass the Indian New Deal. From here, a new era of U.S. policy towards Native Americans was ushered in. In 1933, President Roosevelt appointed John Collier as the commissioner for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. John Collier was a sociologist and social reformer who had spent much of his early career studying issues facing Native peoples and advocating for an end to assimilation policies. Many would even say that Collier romanticized and fetishized indigenous cultures. Now, in his new role as commissioner, he had an opportunity to put his beliefs into action by restoring tribal self-governance. Collier developed plans for his Indian New Deal. However, These ideals and ideas faced great opposition in Congress, as many entrenched private sector interests had benefited from the sale and management of Indian lands. Congress eventually approved the Indian Reorganization Act with one major stipulation. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, part of the Department of Interior, would maintain oversight over the tribes and reservations. So, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs oversight in place, in 1934, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Indian Reorganization Act into law. Sometimes referred to as the Indian New Deal, the Indian Reorganization Act sought to foster self-governance, reconsolidate tribal lands, and promote economic development. The act slowed the allotment of tribal lands, but it did not restore any of the lands that had been granted to individuals over the last four decades of allotment. Because of this, many reservations were left like a checkerboard with a mix of tribal trust lands and fee land. This checkerboarding can still be seen in many tribal communities today, on maps or even from the air. The act also allowed tribes to establish business councils with limited powers to develop community resources. Tribes were required to accept or reject the Indian Reorganization Act by a formal vote, self-government provisions would automatically go into effect for a tribe unless a majority of eligible people voted them down. After tribal approval, the tribe would adopt one of the ready-made model constitutions drafted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. This process pushed tribes to adopt constitutions and government systems similar to the United States, regardless of their own traditional forms of self-governance. U.S. government offered economic incentives, such as federal subsidies, and granted permission to establish business corporations, provided that a tribe would adopt an American-like constitution. Many tribes felt pressure to accept the new legislation, just as they had felt pressure to accept previous policies. Despite the rhetoric of self-determination, the Indian Reorganization Act showed little to no consideration for the diversity among tribes. 
ignored unique customs and traditions related to decision-making, and attempted to impose universal solutions to all communities. When it came down to a vote, over 170 tribes voted to accept the Indian Reorganization Act, and approximately 75, among them the Crow, Navajo, and Seneca, rejected it. Just a couple of years prior to his role as Commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the U.S. government had appointed John Collier to administer the Navajo Livestock Reduction Program. This was said to be a conservation effort in response to overgrazing on Navajo land, located near the northern parts of Arizona. An environmental survey conducted in 1930 had shown that overgrazing had led to reduced vegetation and this was causing erosion of the soil that would only worsen unless the sheep and goat population was reduced by at least half. More contemporary analyses complicate the conversation, though, as historians have pointed out that in the years leading up to the reduction program, the Navajo people had experienced a population boom, yet their land base had remained the same. While the government's solution was to reduce herds, another valid solution could have been to expand the land base for a thriving pastoral people. The Livestock Reduction Program instituted grazing permits and herd limits for each family, and all livestock above that amount would have to be culled. Some Navajo or Diné did not take the reduction of their herds quietly. For years, the Diné rebelled and resisted. Over the span of a few years, the federal government confiscated close to 300,000 horses, goats, and sheep from the Diné people. Some were given up voluntarily, others were sold under market value, and others were simply shot where they stood. To government officials, these herds have little market value, but to the Diné, sheep and money were not interchangeable. These herds, especially the churro sheep, are a central part of Navajo life. This dramatic reduction in their herds resulted in significant losses to culture, food supply, and economic livelihood reducing many families, and many women in particular, to poverty. Over the years, through the allotment process and boarding schools, the U.S. has endeavored to strip indigenous women of their traditional roles as agricultural producers and transform them into housewives. Prior to colonial influence and pressures, Native women engaged in farming, gathering supplies, and other labor-intensive tasks. But colonial society judged women's traditional roles as unsuitable, demeaning work for a woman. Through the Dawes Act, the legislators hoped to assimilate Native people into mainstream society by dividing communal lands into individual parcels and adopting individual households. During the allotment process, parcels of land were given to male heads of households. As Native men were given property rights and were pushed into making a living from the land, women's roles became more and more restricted to the inside of the home. The Indian boarding schools furthered the shifting of gender roles. While young men were trained for wage-earning occupations, young women were trained to support them from within the home. At these institutions, girls were taught to sew, cook, and clean. Again and again, we can see how these assimilation policies altered the structures of community life by shifting gender roles and making women economically dependent. The Livestock Reduction Program is yet another example of this. 
The Diné acquired use rights to grazing land through natural lineages, and women typically owned a large share of the sheep and goats. So these policies and events caused particular anguish to women across the community. In self-organized campaigns, the Diné signed petitions denouncing the livestock reductions, John Collier, and the entire Indian New Deal. Though there is little historical records of these petition meetings, some historians suspect that women played an instrumental role in those discussions and petition campaigns. In 1935, when it came time for tribes to vote whether to participate in the Indian Reorganization Act, Collier's new assignment, the Navajos rejected it. Historical explanations for why the Navajo rejected the Indian Reorganization Act vary. Some say that the herd reductions were seared into Diné memory as a grave injustice at the hands of John Collier. Some analyses emphasize these events as another example of the federal government's heavy-handedness and mismanagement of tribal land and affairs, while others point to the fundamental differences in culture as a primary factor. I believe it was all three. Even today, there are Diné people who are still working to revitalize the churro sheep herds. In the present day, many have mixed positions and opinions of the Indian Reorganization Act, also known as the Indian New Deal. While the act did emphasize the need to involve Native people in the policies affecting their communities and provided some new opportunities for self-governance, the Bureau of Indian Affairs oversight continued a long history of paternalism and left little room for tribal governance based on cultural values and protocols. Few Native individuals or communities were able to become financially self-sustaining as a result of this legislation and its programs. Looking at John Collier's earlier career, which he devoted to advocating for Native self-determination and denouncing assimilation, I'd like to believe that he had the best of intentions when he launched the Indian Reorganization Act. But in order to carry out the Indian Reorganization Act, Collier adopted a one-size-fits-all mentality treating one tribe like any other tribe. By the end of his career, Collier had become despised by many of the people whom he was striving to serve. Through land allotment, the Livestock Reduction Program, the Indian Reorganization Act, and many other examples, we can see that indigenous people have been excluded from the decision-making processes that have governed their lives. Through constantly shifting rules, the matrix of federal Indian policy and Bureau of Indian Affairs oversight has stifled the growth and well-being of tribal nations. Land use, resource management, education systems, and economic enterprises, integral parts of any community or nation, are still subject to massive stipulations. Despite its many flaws, the Indian Reorganization Act did usher in a new era of policy that recognized indigenous rights and did allow for a greater degree of self-governance for some. While this new policy was well-received by many tribes, not all approved or benefited from this shift in policy. The Lumbee people of North Carolina are one of the indigenous communities who were failed by the Indian Reorganization Act. The Lumbee believed that the new law was an opportunity to gain federal recognition and all the rights that came with this designation. 
The Indian Reorganization Act and John Collier set forth a framework that to be considered an Indian person, one had to be one of three things. A member of a federally recognized tribe, a descendant of a member of a recognized tribe, or one half or more Indian blood. According to this Indian Reorganization Act rule, if the Lumbee were able to obtain certification of members of the tribe as one half or more Indian blood, the community could begin the process of adopting a constitution and thereby become recognized. Using these criteria, the Bureau of Indian Affairs sent federal officials to evaluate the Lumbee's claim as a historically contingent Indian community. At the end of the day, the federal officials found very few members of the tribe that were willing or able to provide certification. And so these outside officials speculated that the group most likely descended from a collection of other nearby tribes. So despite having the largest state tribe in North Carolina and meeting all other criteria outlined in the Indian Reorganization Act, the Lumbee were unable to provide sufficient evidence to Congress of their continuous historical presence in the region. Their fight for federal recognition continues. The Lumbee experience shows how Native American communities were ill-served by the classification systems put forth by the Indian Reorganization Act. Historically, Native communities have not defined community membership and belonging based on race. Race is a social construct. That is to say, it only exists because society says it exists. There is no biological distinction between people from different cultures. Despite this fact, these blood quantum rules continue to be one of the primary ways the federal government determines who they recognize and who has rights as a Native person. For those that aren't familiar with the concept of blood quantum, this is a concept developed by the U.S. government as a way to measure the amount of Indian blood an individual has. Blood quantum, or the fraction of Indian blood, is calculated by going back to the original census rolls for the tribes, and the individuals listed on these original census rolls are considered full-blooded. According to this government rule, as Native people have children with people of other races, this reduces the fraction of Indian blood of their descendants. The federal government uses this measurement to issue what is called a Certified Degree of Indian Blood a card similar to an ID card. This certificate of Indian blood is required for any Native person to access any health benefits, child welfare protections, and hunting, fishing, and foraging rights that are provided through treaties. Blood quantum can also impact whether someone is eligible to become a citizen of a tribe. When an individual's blood quantum falls below a certain threshold, the federal government no longer has any legal responsibility nor treaty obligation to that individual. Eventually, using blood quantum rules, Native peoples would literally breed themselves out of federal recognition. Through the Indian Reorganization Act and Bureau of Indian Affairs, the U.S. government has imposed these racial boundaries onto Native communities. These racialized and colonial ideas of nationhood and citizenship continue to be a part of critical conversations across Indian country today. When I began reading the Merriam Report, my first impression was how progressive and incredible it must have been for such a survey to have been conducted in the 1920s. 
In many respects, the report did help put into context the living conditions in Native communities and point to the many failures of the federal government. Yet, as I continued to delve deeper into the findings, it became evident that any attempt at objectivity had fallen short. The perspective in which the team examined Native life was still through the white American lens. The standards used to assess Indigenous communities' progress were based on colonial society's economic priorities, definitions of health, and concepts of wealth. Similar language has and continues to drive community development. Even today, the same ideology has led many down the road thinking that Indigenous communities and other communities of color around the globe are underdeveloped, primitive, and underutilizing valuable resources. Often clothed as white saviorism, these attitudes and police have led to the disenfranchisement and oppression of indigenous peoples. While the report pointed out the federal government's failure to keep its promises to Native Americans and protect them, the observations and assessments made of Native peoples are patronizing and deny indigenous people of any genuine agency over their own lives. Reflecting on the Merriam Report and the events of this era, one of the most disheartening observations is how little has changed in almost a century. Food insecurity, or the inaccessibility of healthy food, remains one of the primary causes of chronic illness in Indian country. Medical care for Indian country is still woefully underfunded, understaffed, and under-resourced. Economically, many Native people continue to experience some of the highest rates of poverty nationwide. These inequities are all outcomes of intentionally constructed legal systems and social environments meant to oppress indigenous people and exploit our homelands. To understand the necessity of sovereignty, we have to understand this relationship between power and control. People have to understand that the power imbalances did not emerge naturally. They were strategically crafted so that white Americans would be the ones to benefit from the generosity of this land and the subjugation of its original inhabitants. Whether we are talking about legal autonomy of indigenous nations or the people's right to define their own food systems, sovereignty is essential to the continuation and well-being of native cultures. It is our inherent right to govern ourselves and we have within ourselves the capacity to self-organize and shape the future of our communities. There are hundreds of nations and communities across Turtle Island, each of whom has this capacity within them. One size fits all does not work for government structures or for local food systems. Local contexts and priorities have to be recognized. Unique ecosystems, culture, and relationships have to be honored. The place-based wisdom of a specific community is the only knowledge that will lead to sustainable, even regenerative food systems. Food sovereignty challenges the structures that have allowed the corporate industrial food system to thrive. It empowers communities to create the conditions for a more equitable, sustainable, and localized food system to re-emerge. That is exactly why food sovereignty is necessary.
Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. We will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to Indian Reorganization, Episode 7 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe to Spirit Plate anywhere you get your podcasts, and we'll be back next week with Dr. Martin Reinhardt, Professor of Native American Studies at Northern Michigan University, about the era of termination and how it led to a new era of intertribal activism. Throughout Season 1, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is n-a-t-i-v-e-l-a-n-d.ca. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Cuddlechuck, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bye-bye.